Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 this morning. Genesis 18, 1 through 16. Last time we saw God promise Abraham that it would be through his wife Sarah that God's promises of land, renown, children, nations, kings, but most importantly, the future Savior of the world would come. That he would come not just through Abraham, but now they also know through Sarah. And we saw that that news that God spoke to Abraham brought from him angst and stress. And he cried out to God, don't do it that way. But, but choose Ishmael. Let him be the one. Let him save and bring Save him and bring salvation through him, O God, in effect, was Abraham's prayer. But God said no to that prayer. God said no to the prayer of salvation for Ishmael. And God alone is the one who saves. And God is completely sovereign in his grace as he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will harden whom I will harden. And God's people must, must submit to that, must accept that. You've been a Christian for any length of time at all. You've prayed for loved ones. And maybe you've seen those loved ones die and never seen a sure sign of faith. You have to put God first. You have to still press on. You don't know for one thing, but ultimately you give that to the Lord, whether it's your parents, whether it's your children, whether it's your siblings, whether it's your spouse. We pray and we rightly pray and we ask God to save, but God saves according to his will. And we can't call that down from heaven by any trick, by any obedience, by any so-called faithfulness. God doesn't promise that to anybody. He promises those who believe in Jesus will have everlasting life. But he does not promise to save anyone apart from his sovereign grace. And so Abraham accepted that. He accepted that and he did the next act of faith, the next act of obedience. And God, even for Abraham's sake, promised to greatly bless Ishmael, to prosper his descendants for many generations to come. And Abraham again put God first and believed God and served God in spite of God saying no to his prayer. And not doing the thing that he desperately wanted God to do. I know what that's like to pray for God desperately to do this or that. And God will say, no, remember, God is God. He's not Santa Claus in the sky who's going to do whatever we ask if we ask nice enough or if we do enough works. Everything we get from God is undeserved grace and mercy, and we cannot call that down with anything we do or we're looking to our works but God is a good God and he tells us to pray to him and he says he will grant what we pray in his name according to his will and that's when we submit our will to his even as our Lord Jesus Christ who prayed so desperately that he sweat great drops of blood and God said no to that prayer and Jesus said thy will be done and that's what we must do as well. Well, in today's text, we have a very mysterious event, appearance of God to Abraham, to his house. And in our text, Sarah learns of her impending pregnancy. How does she respond to that? And what lesson is there 
for us in this event. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your spirit who takes that word and saves and sanctifies us by it. Lord God, let your word go deep into our hearts this morning. Change us by the power of your word. Help us, Father, to seek you and to put you first in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy and perfect word. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. And he said, My Lord, if I now have found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And so they said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and he said, Quickly! Make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and he took a tender and good calf and he gave it to a young man and he hastened to prepare it. And so he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then he said to them, I'm sorry, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed beyond the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself saying after I have grown old shall I have pleasure my Lord being old also and the Lord said to Abraham why did Sarah laugh saying shall I surely bear a child since I am old is anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life and Sarah shall have a son But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Then the men rose from there, and they looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, a divine mystery I want you to notice a divine mystery. I actually had this originally called a unique appearance, but I want to talk about the mystery of this appearance. This is now the third appearance of the Lord to Abraham, the third time Abraham gets a theophany. Now, he's also been given a vision. He's also had God come to him in a prophetic dream. God has spoken to him. But this is the third time where he sees something that manifests the presence of God. And yet what's mysterious about this is that Abraham at first, and I'm going to hopefully prove this to you, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't know that who he sees when he lifts up his eyes 
And he sees these three men. I know the English says by him. It's, it's the word el in Hebrew. It can mean about, concerning, around. It's just in the vicinity. It's not like poof, he opens his eyes and they're right beside him, you know, like bewitched or something. He sees them off in the distance. And it's interesting because he's sitting in his tent and it's the heat of the day. He's in the door of his tent. He's under the trees in that climate in that time. It's too hot to work in the summer. And so, uh, in the, I'm sorry, in the, um, in the middle of the afternoon. So you wake up before sunrise and you work in the morning, maybe till 10 or 11. Then it gets warm, gets super hot, and you find shade and you take your rest until maybe 3 or so. And then you can work some more until the evening. So Abraham's sitting in the door of his tent under the trees of Mamre, as you would do in the door of the tent where maybe you'd catch a breeze, you know, trying to find some cool air. And he opens his eyes and he sees three men, the text says. It's the ordinary word for men. We know more than Abraham does at this point. He sees three men. The original Geneva Bible says three angels in the shape of men. There's a lot of mystery here. We're never really clearly told exactly what we see. There's a couple of different theories. Perhaps one of the oldest, at least in the Christian tradition, is that this is uh, the Trinity, right? Some of the church fathers wax poetic on that idea. And it's very attractive, is it not? He sees the Lord and he sees three men. We know God is one being in three persons. It's a very attractive theory. Uh, There's mystery there. Clearly the, the, the man, the one man is called the Lord. But then later in the text, in chapter 19, verse 1, two of them are called angels. Now, we know that there's the angel of the Lord who often is identified with the Lord. People even worship him, and they're not rebuked for that, and he accepts it, and he speaks as the Lord, and there's mystery there. So is it possible that these two angels could still be two persons? Probably the most popular theory would be that this is the Lord and two angels, that God himself appears as a man, and then two angels appear as a man. But is it that they're real human beings, or do they just appear, you know, sort of a phantom, a ghost, not really bodies? It's hard to say conclusively again. There's so much mystery in this text, but they do walk, they do talk, they sit, and they eat. It's really difficult to say that they're not actually real bodies that were given to them temporarily. Calvin's view is that God, who formed everything from the dust, formed these bodies for these celestial beings. And when they were done with them, they went back to the dust. And they were never uh, anything more than God to appear to Abraham this way. But why does God do that? I mean, why this grand display of these three beings coming to Abraham and appearing this way? We know one of the purposes, because it happens, is that Abraham gets this revelation from God. But everything that God tells Abraham, Abraham already knows. He's already been told in chapter 17 that Sarah will have a son. And he tells him in chapter 17, you're going to name him Isaac. They don't add that detail here. And then it will be this time next year. And that's something else that's said in this text. So there's nothing new for Abraham in the text. And you get the feeling that if Abraham would not have stopped them, 
they would have kept going and Abraham wouldn't even have gotten that message. Now, it doesn't seem like the message is for Abraham as much because there's a few other things in the text as well that show us that the text really is, the revelation rather, really is intended for Sarah. That Sarah's getting the revelation and that God is speaking to her through Abraham, as it were. Um, it's interesting because Abraham has already been told this. Sarah is now told this. And we don't know how much time has passed from the end of chapter 17 to the beginning of chapter 18. It can't be that long. It can't be more than, I would think, maybe six or eight weeks at the absolute most because verse 21 of 17 the angel says to Sarah, rather, the Lord says to Sarah, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear, bear to you at this set time next year. Pregnancy is 12 months, or nine months. Wow. I don't ever be a prophet on that one. For elephants, I think it's longer. But anyway, nine months, right? So a year, so there's a three-month window here where this next revelation has happened. All we, all we get at the beginning of 18, then the Lord appeared to him. After the day that God appeared and Abraham gets the message about Sarah and about circumcision and he circumcises his whole house. So we need a couple, probably a good two weeks for everyone to heal from the circumcision to where Abraham's able to run around and do all the things that he's doing. I would think no more than a month has passed. But the interesting thing is it doesn't seem like Sarah knew. It doesn't seem like Abraham says anything to Sarah about her bearing a child because it hits her as a complete surprise later on when the angel speaks of it. And so God who brings and gives revelation and he gives revelation supernaturally and that's part of this text here that we know these are supernatural beings. We know them because we're looking to the end of the story. Abraham doesn't know that at the, at the time. But God gives that supernatural revelation that we would know that his word is from him because we have to be able to trust in God in order to have faith in his word. If I think I'm just getting some really cool ideas that some really wise Jewish sages had, you know, 4,000 years ago, that's not faith in God. You know, the, 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 the Bible is not the words about God from from godly men. The Bible is the word from God to and through godly men. And that's what we see in this text. And so there's so many mysteries and there's so many things and I could continue to um, speculate and really not give you any conclusions. We're just going to leave it with this is a divine mystery. We know God comes to speak this word and he speaks it and through that through that revelation, he actually causes, as I want you to see, his promises to come to pass. And so secondly, I want you to notice a humble service. I want you to notice a humble service. That was what I originally called the point, but the new name is a Christian hospitality. I want you to notice a Christian hospitality. So a divine mystery... Christian hospital. Why do I call it that? It's anachronistic, obviously. Abraham is living 2,000 years before Christ. But what Abraham models in this text is a kind of hospitality, a humble service as well, that all Christians should show. And the commentators all seem to pick up on it and contrast it later with what happens in 
Sodom and Gomorrah, and this is Calvin, Matthew, Henry, all of them pointing out these things, as if God is showing here the way Christians ought to treat people versus the way they did in Sodom and Gomorrah later. But I want you to notice what happens when these men are noticed by Abraham. Verse 2, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. Abraham is 99 years old. He is the chieftain of a camp that has to be at least two to 4,000 people because he armed 318 men to go to war earlier in chapter 14. 314 or 318 men who are able to go to war. So, you know, maybe 20 to 50 tops, probably not even that old, 20 to 40. So you've got older men, you've got younger men, you've got women that age and older women and younger women. You've got little boys, little girls, you've got babies that go along with those 318 men who are Abraham's servants and hired men. And it's the whole camp. And we know from all sorts of records that this is the way that the Bedouins would live, that there would be like a, like a little nation that would move around. And Abraham is the chieftain, and he sees these three men, and of course his tent would be marked. You would know that he was the chieftain, and he sees them coming in the distance. Now when Abraham sees them, he runs to meet them. He doesn't know who they are. The text is clear. He sees three men. And I don't think there's any reason to think that he thinks, oh, wow, this is God with a couple of angels or these are three angels. I think he sees three men and he recognizes, and of course, in the Middle East, there is this great tradition of hospitality. And so Abraham is going to show that to these men. It's the heat of the day, it's hot. These men are coming towards his tent and Abraham recognizes uh, their need. But I want to notice this kind of hospitality that Abraham shows. I think it's so extravagant that we really want to say, oh, he must have known they were angels and God because he would never have done this if it was just ordinary people. And the majority of the commentators, and I'm convinced as well, say that Abraham thought, at least until the middle of their conversation, that these were ordinary people which really kind of blows your mind when you see what Abraham does. So I want to point out some of the extravagant hospitality that Abraham shows and the humility, the personal, humble, at-your-service attitude that the father of the faithful, this sheik of several thousand people, this chieftain, this father of the church shows to strangers. All right? We've already noticed that he runs from the tent door to meet them. This is really shocking and even scandalous that Abraham, the father of the faithful, would run at 99 years old to greet strangers and then bows himself to the ground and basically says, my Lord, you know, I am at your service. I am your servant. It's interesting because, you know, the Puritans would always sign their letters to one another that way. You know, your most humble and obedient servant. That's not... That's not fake. If you really believe that we're called to serve one another in the Lord. Abraham shows this extravagant service. What does he do? He bows, he, he begs them to let me serve you, 
please let a little water be brought. You know, they, you know, they're walking in the dust and the dry heat. They walked in sandals, part of uh, uh, refreshment and relaxing. We see this all the way up until the time of Christ, right? Was, you know, you would wash your guest's feet. So Abraham has water. Uh, you know, he begs them to let him do this for them. And then he says, and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts, etc." Notice how he downplays his service. I'm going to bring you a morsel of bread. What does he actually do? Abraham hurried. You see this again. Abraham hurried, hastened into the tent to Sarah. And he said, hasten, same word, hurry. Make ready three measures of fine meal. It's the word seah. We don't know how much a seah is. There's a couple of arguments that it's anywhere from one gallon to three gallons of dry seed. Isaiah is so much that when Abigail is preparing roasted grain for David's several hundred men, she prepares five sayas. Five for several hundred men. This is a feast. Three sayas of, of fine flour, he says. Fine flour. This is not the bad stuff. And then he tells her to knead it. They could make cakes in a hurry without kneading it. You know, kneading the dough takes time. I remember watching my grandmother, you know, kneading the dough. And she knew how to do it just perfect. Because if you don't do it long enough, it's not going to turn out good. And if you do it too long, it's going to mess up the bread as well. And so Abraham has Sarah to do, in other words, make the best cakes, right? And he doesn't tell Sarah to get servants. And Sarah doesn't get servants. And Sarah has a couple of dozen maids that she could have had do this. Sarah makes the cake. She's like her husband. And then Abraham runs to the herd. He runs to the herd, it says, and he takes a tender and good calf. Now, this is significant because if somebody important came to your house, you would bring them food. If they were really important, you might include meat, but usually not if you really wanted to honor somebody. But even then, you would take a kid or a goat from the flock. Remember when Nathan confronts David about the rich man who has all these flocks and herds and he really wanted to show off to his guest and so he takes the poor man's only goat, his only lamb, kid, because that's what you would take a lamb, you know, a kid, a goat. A, a kid or a goat or a lamb, they grow up to like be 40, 45, 50, maybe 60 pounds. That's the kind of animal we're talking. Abraham takes a calf, a young cow, you know, 1,200 pounds when they grow up, 1,000 pounds, 1,400 pounds. Cattle get huge. This is an enormous expense for Abraham to do this. And he does it himself. He picks a calf. And by picking a calf, the meat is tender. But you lose all the, pro the profit you would have got as this cow grew. And if it was a milk cow, all the milk you would have gotten and for years. And then the calves that it would have produced, you lose all of that when you butcher a calf. Right? Abraham has a young man do that because Abraham has something else to do. He gets the butter, he gets the milk, and they would prepare this savory sauce that they would cook the meat in, and then you would take the bread and you would dip it in that, ooh, that, that succulent butter and meat and all the rest, and you would just dip that in and you would eat that. And after Abraham does all this, prepares this feast for these men, he prepares it, he sets it before them. None of the servants... He doesn't have servants do this. Abraham does this. And then he stands beside them under the tree 
and he doesn't sit down and he doesn't eat. Can I get you another glass of water? Can I get you a napkin? Can I get you some ketchup with that? Some salt maybe? He stands there as a waiter while they eat. And he ran and he hastened to do it as quickly as he could because he didn't want to have them waiting for him. And he didn't want them to think it was a burden. I'm going to get you a morsel of bread. And then he runs around and does all this. I think this is amazing. This extravagance, this generosity. Abraham is a man of wealth. He can do this. A lot of people couldn't do this. Abraham does this extravagantly. He does this personally. What are the causes? Why would someone do this? Why would someone show this kind of, of just magnanimous generosity to people that you don't even know? Well, first of all, Abraham would have noticed as these men were in a distance that number one, they're not brigands. They're not criminals. They're not you know, beggars, lepers. He sees from their carriage, from the way they're holding themselves, from the way they approach, that they are respectful, that they are um, uh, men of honor at some level. He's able to tell that, right? We're able to tell that, right, when you see someone. I know we're kind of cautioned against that, right, that it's somehow wrong, you know, to actually look and judge what you see, that somehow, you know, you're a racist or a stereotyper or something. But we all know this. I mean, if you go home today and you're sitting in your house and you hear someone at the door and you look outside and there are two men in suits with white shirts and black ties, you know you got two Mormons on the porch. You know that. Or if you see three, two or three people dressed nicely and one of them's a woman, it's the watchtower, Jehovah's Witnesses are calling. You know that. I mean, that's just common sense. But the same thing's true if you're in your business or if you're somewhere and, you know, you see a, a young woman and she's trying to discipline her children and she's trying to, and you think, oh, you know, right away, there's a respectful woman, right? You see somebody else, you see some guy cussing and swearing and, you know, acting like a fool, what, you're probably going to walk on the other side of the street. That's smart. That's not being racist. That's actually being wise. Abraham sees respectful men. Men who are carrying themselves decently. He recognizes one of them is the leader by the way they are approaching. He knows they've come to see him. And he also trusts in the providence of God. I want you to see that in verse 5. Where he says, after, you know, uh, you may rest your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. In other words, here you are in front of me and you have needs. It's hot you're tired, you're thirsty, your feet are covered with dirt, and I can meet your needs. Therefore, it's God's will. And as much as you've come to your servant, let me do all this for you, then you can go on your way. I want you to be better off after you left me than you were when you came. That's really what Abraham is doing here. And I want you to think about, again, so the men themselves, but it's also about the, another reason Abraham does this is because of what Abraham believes. Abraham, and you have to do this to treat people this way. You have to actually believe that every person is more than just, you know, a grown-up germ or a highly evolved ape or something like that. You have to actually believe that people have infinite and eternal value, that people are transcendent, that there is something beyond the outward that you can judge and maybe dismiss, oh, that person's not as, you know, young or uh, pretty as I am, that person's not as strong as I am, or that person's not as smart as I am, but you know there's something beyond that where we do see differences, that that person is equally valuable and has dignity and 
is the same as me. And therefore, I ought to be at their service. You have to have that in your head in order to treat someone this way. And Abraham is not trying to show hospitality or to show that he is a good person. Abraham is doing it. And he's trying to downplay it. It's a morsel. It's a crumb of bread. It's no, no bother. It's nothing. Abraham does this because what it believes about people, that people are made in the image of God, that they have worth, that they have dignity. And Abraham, the father of the church, goes to great expense to serve these strange men whom all he knows is they came to his tent for something. But what he can do and what motivates him is to meet their needs. That's all Abraham is looking to do, to meet their needs. Calvin calls hospitality here to strangers, and that's what this is. Calvin calls it the highest form of service. Do you know why? Because there is no possibility when we show hospitality to strangers of getting paid back. We have no idea that that will ever happen. If you just see somebody who's a stranger and you don't know them and you serve them in this way, there can't be anything selfish in it for you because there's just no way. It's a stranger. We are prone, Calvin goes on, he says, we're prone to do favors to those whom we know. So they think more highly of us so that they like, you know, uh, maybe uh, put us on a pedestal or we can ingratiate ourselves to them if they're like, you know, more powerful or more rich than us and we can sort of use that relationship now to get extra favors. You know, it's, it's really giving and taking a bribe. That's what a lot of good, kind behavior is. I do it to my advantage ultimately. Now I'm going to downplay that. I'm going to call it customer service, but I'm still looking at the bottom line, you know. And if the bottom line isn't there, then we're going to change that, right? That's what, unfortunately, hospitality is so often. It's the people we know in our family, in our workplace, even in our church, to make ourselves look better, to get more honor, dignity, whatever. It's the people we know. The word hospitality in the Greek comes from two words, phileo and xenia. Phileo is love. Xenia, you probably heard of xenophobia, right? Which is what? Fear of strangers. Literally, the word that we get in English, hospitality, is the Greek word love of the stranger. It's the word love of the stranger. And Abraham, again, doesn't know. I don't think he knows. I don't think he has any idea that he is entertaining at this point angels. And one of the reasons why I say that, I said I was going to try to show that to you, is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality, phileozenia, to strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. There's only three possible episodes that Scripture could be talking about there. This episode... Chapter 19, when Lot entertains the two of these angels that are still there in Sodom, and then in the book of Judges. And it actually says in Hebrews, some. So it has to be at least two of the three times that we're talking about. I see Abraham here showing what really we should show, this kind of Christian hospitality. It's not about having people come into your homes or spending a lot of money on people. It's about trying to meet somebody's need. Right? I would say Jesus would be the model of hospitality. And how many people did Jesus have in his home? 
Jesus didn't have a home. Once he entered his public ministry, he never had a place to lay his head. But he genuinely sought to do good to people and to meet their needs when he could. Especially their biggest need, which is that they were sinners in need of a savior. And Christ overwhelmingly went out of his way to have real conversations with people to get them to see the most important thing. Christ was a friend to sinners, but not to encourage them to sin, to lead them out of it. So this is a Christian hospitality. Thirdly, I want you to notice an impossible promise. An impossible promise. The first inclination that we get that this is more than human beings is in verse 9, when they said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? They know he has a wife. They know her name. Now, Abraham's famous. He's the leader, probably here 15 times over. Yeah, Abraham's the leader. His wife is Sarai, king and queen of the camp. But Abraham hadn't told Sarai that her new name from the Lord is Sarah. So how in the world would these angels know that? Or these three men, if they're just three men? How would they know what God said to Abraham in an appearance in chapter 17, to just Abraham, and we get clearly in a couple of verses, Sarah has no idea about any of this. So that seems to be the case that, wow, these guys have supernatural knowledge, and if you're not convinced at verse 9, it's clear it happens at verse 10. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, the time of gestation of the baby, and behold, your wife Sarah shall have a son. All right? So this is what God had said to Abraham in chapter 17. And again, calls her Sarah. So Abraham knows this is a supernatural being. All right, at this point, he knows that this is someone who has sent from God. You know, maybe he could say it was a prophet or something, but he knows that this is more than just an ordinary man. Now, the angel has asked where Sarah was because the message is actually for her. In that time and in that culture, it was considered indecent for a woman to sit with strangers like this. And so he asked, where's Sarah? She's in the tent right behind you because she's part of the conversation, but she's not seen. And so then the angel speaks. Then he speaks the message that he was given for Sarah because she doesn't know, okay? And how does she respond? She responds, we see it with unbelief. The narrator gives us a little reminder. Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in years, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. It says literally the way of women had ceased with Sarah. Remember when, when uh, Rachel is hiding the idols under the pillows and doesn't want Laban's men to know? And so she says, I can't get up because the way of women is upon me. You know, I'm in my period. And that's, the text here says that Sarah's menses have ceased, literally. She's gone through menopause, all right? She cannot have children. And so she hears this promise, and she, it says, now I want you to look closely, verse 12, Sarah laughed within herself. She doesn't laugh out loud like Abraham did. She laughs within herself, and she says within herself, this is the laughing thought that she has, shall I have pleasure after I've grown old, my Lord being old also, Okay? So she doesn't believe the word. The angel, it's actually the Lord. I keep saying the angel because it's verse 13 says, and the Lord said. So here's where we get that one of these beings is the Lord. 
And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Now notice how God doesn't say the exact thing that Sarah said. Sarah said, shall I have pleasure? And the word is pleasure. God says, shall I bear a child? Why? Because that's what she is thinking. He's summarizing her thoughts. What we do when someone does this, because Sarah is being rebuked, we immediately would say, I didn't say that. I said have pleasure. And we would defend ourselves to the bitter end because the person got a word wrong. It's not getting it wrong. Whenever we get that detailed in our defense, we are probably hiding the fact that we're at fault. The bigger issue is Sarah is not believing the word of God because she thinks she's too old. Whether or not, you know, he says specifically pleasure or have child, it's together. They're the same thing. But I just want you to notice that, that the angel rebukes Sarah. Now, Sarah and Abraham both do the same thing. Abraham laughed, and I said it wasn't in unbelief and faith because the New Testament says Abraham did not waver in faith, and God doesn't rebuke him. Sarah laughs, and Sarah gets rebuked because I think she laughs in unbelief. Right? In fact, the angel going on, or the Lord going on, rather, verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come. In other words, he knows that she laughed because it's too hard. It's impossible in the natural, right? I get this from Christians all the time, where we look at what some expert has said in some scientific field, and we say, well, that can't, the word of God can't be true. Because the natural, it can't be possible. Now, Sarah has a much stronger truth than we ordinarily have when we do this. She's passed through menopause. Women cannot have babies anymore. There's, there's a lot of evidence for that, okay? A lot of evidence. But I'll get all the time, well, you know, Noah's flood couldn't have happened because the mountains are too high. Or the earth has to be four to six billion years old because, you know, that's what the geologists are saying. And therefore, the Bible, it will find a way to explain the Bible away. Even though I can show you all the different wrong assumptions that are being made in, that, in this blind belief of experts who themselves, a hundred years ago, they were saying something different. And a hundred years from now, they're going to be saying something different too. Why don't we just believe the word? Why don't we just believe what the word says? It turns out to be true all the time, every time. But Sarah is caught up in the natural and so was, and this is why I had it in the scripture reading, so was Zacharias. The same thing happens. Did you notice it in the scripture reading in reverse? Zacharias and Mary ask almost the same question after being given almost the exact same revelation. You're going to have a baby. We're too old. God rebukes Zacharias for not believing and he strikes him dumb until the baby's born. That's nine months later. Maybe Elizabeth appreciated the silence in the house. <laughs> but Mary believes Though she asks almost exactly the same question, Mary believes. Because Mary's question was not in unbelief. It was in just trying to understand what God was saying. She believed from the beginning, but she doesn't even have a husband. What does this mean? That's what she wants to know. Zacharias's were too old. That's doubting the Lord, putting the natural before the supernatural. Mary's question is, I want to know what you want me to do now. Should I marry Joseph? What does this mean? And we know Mary believed because when she meets Elizabeth later in Luke 1.45, just another six or eight verses after uh, Pastor Appleton stopped reading, blessed is she who believed for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. So Mary believed. 
She's not rebuked. Zacharias doesn't believe. He's rebuked. They ask almost exactly the same question. Abraham believes when he laughs. Sarah disbelieves when she laughs inside. But Sarah needs to have faith. And the fact is God rebukes her so that she will be brought back to faith. And so I want you to notice, fourthly and lastly, an invincible Savior, an invincible Savior. This is why the angels have come. They've come to reveal themselves slowly to test, as it were, Abraham and Sarah. Are they going to show kindness? Are they going to show hospitality? Are they going to stop us and get this word? Or are we going to just move on? But Sarah has to hear the word of God and she has to believe. Matthew Henry says it this way, quote, care is taken that Sarah should be within hearing. She must conceive by faith and therefore the promise must be made to her. That's why the angel says, where is Sarah your wife? This is for her, in other words. Abraham would have understood that. She's in the tent, speak on. And then he speaks, and this is a very uh, surprising thing. And he speaks the revelation of God and Sarah hears this, not knowing, not believing, not seeing yet, not knowing what Abraham knew. Wow, these guys must be from God. She doesn't know that yet. She hears this promise. She thinks it's absurd. She's respectful, though. She's not going to laugh at their dignified strangers that they're going out of their way to serve and send on their way, blessed by them. So she doesn't laugh. But then the angel shows, the Lord shows, I keep doing it, the Lord shows that he's supernatural that this is not a man. When he asks Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Sarah didn't laugh out loud. He's, he's reading her mind. And Sarah knows that. She knows that in her heart she just laughed. And he, she hears the Lord, who she doesn't know is the Lord, say, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard? And even knows the reason why she laughed, because she thinks she's too old. So Sarah knows this is from the Lord. And immediately she believes she believes so much and she's so embarrassed that she denies that she laughed because she doesn't want it to be thought of that she could have done something so horrible as to laugh at the word of God. I did not laugh because she was afraid. Why was she afraid? Because she knows this is from the Lord and she's ashamed. She's ashamed to admit she didn't believe. She wants to... Forget about that. Again, I'm sure technically I know what we would do. You said I laughed and laughter is heard and it, it involves the expo, uh, you know, uh, ex, uh, exhaling of air and sound. And I didn't do that. And we get real technical and precise, right? When we're accused of anything. Sarah laughed in her heart. And the Lord is calling her on it and she doesn't play that game. She knows she laughed. She now believes the word of God, but she's so embarrassed that she denies that she laughed, which is a lie. She lies. She denied it, saying, I did not laugh. Calvin says at this point, how great is the corruption of our nature, which causes even the fear of God, the highest of all virtues to degenerate into a fault because she so feared God she lies to cover up her sins and this is a temptation that we have right we want to look like we're good Christian respectful people we want to look like we haven't sinned 
Matthew Henry says it this way. This is a sinful attempt to cover a sin with a lie. It's a shame to do amiss, but a greater shame to deny it. For thereby we add iniquity to our iniquity. Fear of rebuke often betrays us into this snare. And when we get puffed up in pride, we don't want to be rebuked. We don't want to be told we sinned. And then we have to admit it and be ashamed in order to be restored. But there's no other way to be restored. That's the purpose of rebuke. That's the purpose of church discipline. I've been a pastor now 20 years. October 20th this year was my 20th anniversary as a pastor. I've seen us do a lot of times where we do, you know, discipline. And overwhelmingly, the people are offended. They're mad at us. They leave. And we're trying to call them to repentance. And we don't think less of them because we can all fall into sin. And the rebuke is made for their good. And I have, by the grace of God, seen several people excommunicated, humble themselves, admit their sins, and be restored. Be powerful examples of grace and godliness in the church again. Uh, And one of my best friends in the church, John, and how we prayed together and met together and went out together, and he was restored because he humbled himself and he admitted that he was a sinner like all of us. And that's what the rebuke is for. Because Sarah had sinned. And then she sinned again when she wouldn't accept the rebuke. So what does God do? What did he do to Zacharias? (laughs) Struck him dumb for, for at least nine months. What does he do to Sarah? He doesn't do anything. He just points out that she's lying. And he said, no, but you did lie. God is not going to let Sarah rest hiding the sin. It's got to come out. It's got to be exposed. And I think Sarah at this point did, uh, she did admit her sin and she did receive God's grace. God wouldn't let her hide it because he loved her. I know you you read that text and you think, boy, you have to, we all know what she's doing. We all get it. Lord, you don't have to point it out to her again. No, he has to. Because she has to accept it so that she would humble herself and repent and be restored. Calvin contrasts the stricter rebuke to Zechariah with what God does to Sarah. He sees the same contrast that I'm seeing. He says, in Sarah, truly, he gives a singular instance of his compassion because he freely forgives her all and still chooses that she should remain the mother of the church. There's no consequence to Sarah. Calvin sees her really as more like a gospel promise where God is so much more gracious in the new covenant. Zacharias, in a sense, is still in the old covenant period. I mean, so is Sarah. But God chooses to show this magnanimous grace, no rebuke, no temporal judgment, just pointing it out to her again. And still she's the mother of the faithful. And in fact, we know that Sarah does admit her sin because when she names the child in chapter 21, she talks about how God has made me laugh. The thing she denied. Now she celebrates it, right? She celebrates it. Why did Sarah have to have faith? Because Hebrews says that it was by faith that Sarah received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah considered him faithful who had promised. So Sarah does come to faith in this text. 
Otherwise, she couldn't have conceived. Why did God want Sarah to conceive by faith? He certainly doesn't need her to do that. Normal conception doesn't happen that way. You have to believe. Because that's the way salvation comes. It comes by faith. How did Jesus heal? He heals over and over again to those who believe. And when they didn't believe, what did it say? He couldn't do many miracles there because they didn't believe. Matthew chapter 9, 28. And when he came into the house, the blind man said to him, the blind, or sorry, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be. Why is God doing it according to faith? Does Jesus need faith to heal somebody? No, but he's showing them that it's by faith that salvation comes. It's by faith that we know God. It's by faith that we draw near to him. And that's what he's showing Sarah, that she has to believe the word or she won't conceive because she has to conceive by faith. She receives strength, Hebrews says. Again, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself, emphasizes Sarah, received power, dunamis, to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah needed to believe. And in the midst of her unbelief, and then in the midst of covering it up, God doesn't rest. God, the hounds of heaven, as it were, they're not gonna let you go. If you're a Christian and you're hiding your sin and you're denying it, God is not gonna let you go. He's going to find some way to bring you to yourself. You might wanna not resist him too much longer. Take it from one who, who doesn't learn until he like has rocks fall on his head. You know, God gently, 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 but if you're his, he will get you. Eventually, Sarah responds very quickly. And the last thing I want to point out in this text, it's still under this invincible Savior point, but you know, in the midst of this sinful disbelief and then the denial, Sarah is a woman of faith. She's like the man who says, you know, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Zacharias too. Zacharias was a man of faith. He stumbled. He disbelieved. We never do that, right? We never stumble. We never, never struggle. This is the word of God. I presuppose it all. Good trick. I struggle sometimes. I can't just declare my perfect faith in the word of God. What's interesting about Sarah is even in the midst of her denial, we're in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. This whole statement, unbelief, laughing at God's word. The New Testament recalls this event and it commends Sarah. Did you know that? This verse, verse 12, Sarah is recalled and she's commended. It just, it, to me, it's just such an emblem of what God promises us, how he will take away our sins and in heaven we will only have rewards even for the slightest little things that we did and no sin will be brought up. God removes them as far as the east from the west and you say, well, where is the good thing that Sarah does in this text in verse 12? When God in his Holy Spirit recalls this event, he remembers something to praise Sarah by. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. You know, that's the only, this is the only place in the whole Bible where Sarah calls Abraham Lord. This is what Peter's talking about. 
Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord in the midst of unbelief, in the midst of laughing at the word of God. The spirit doesn't recall that. Sarah is a saint. That's taken by Christ. What in the midst of her expressing her unbelief does she express that is so noble? She calls Abraham Lord. She's not talking, remember? She's laughing in her heart. She's saying these things in her heart. In other words, Sarah so believed in the word of God where a woman is to submit to her husband and honor him and show him respect that when she thought about him, she thought of him as Lord. Now that's just Sir Curios in our text, Adonai. Abraham uses the word in verse three, my Lord, rest, Adonai. That's what you say respectful to somebody, but it's a respectful title. That Sarah, when she thought of her husband, you can't fake this. This isn't, you know, let's go and show them how friendly we are. This is, we are friendly. This isn't, I want to show my husband how much I honor him. This is, I honor him. Right? We're always talking about how we want to show, we want to do, we want to make people think. Sarah honored her husband. She believed the word of God so much that in her heart, when she thought of Abraham, I just can't get over it. Because this is what we're supposed to do with the word of God. We're supposed to internalize it. We're supposed to cause it to have uh, and build our thinking upon. For Sarah, you know, when she stumbled on God's word, she has a pretty good excuse that we don't have. It was a brand new word from God. Never heard by her before. We don't have that excuse. We've got it all right here. And we still stumble and we disbelieve. And that's because we need to be like Sarah. We need to get God's word internalized into us so it's in our thoughts the way we should respect others, the way we should show love to others, the way we should show this kind of hospitality that Sarah and Abraham show from their heart, magnanimously pouring out to others because Sarah, in spite of her disobedience, in spite of her unbelief, was a woman of faith. And she loved the Lord and his heart his word was in her heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Sarah's faith in calling her husband Lord in her heart. Oh, Father, it's so easy for us to go through the motions, to smile when we're supposed to smile, to, to say this or that word because we know it's supposed to be said, but do we really think those things in our heart? Oh, Lord, what a noble example for all of us Christians to really want to internalize God's word that even in the midst of, of sin, we're expressing faith in the word of God because it's in us. It's in our heart and in our minds. Lord, we thank you that Sarah believed so that she could receive the power from you to conceive the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, how you oversaw all these things. Bless, Lord God, this word to us. Help us to have the kind of love for others that Abraham and Sarah showed but mostly that we would love you and live by your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.